industry, apologetics, and current events. From the housetops, coming up next. St. Francis de Sales, the great bishop of Geneva and doctor of the church, who died in 1622, has left in his writings a most valuable treasury of spiritual doctrine. In his meditation on human suffering, he reminds us of the watchful care of divine providence that allows us a participation in the sufferings of Christ. He states, The everlasting God has in his wisdom foreseen from all eternity the cross that he now presents you as a gift from his inmost heart. This cross he now sends you, he has considered with his all-knowing eyes, understood with his divine mind, tested with his wise justice, warmed with loving arms, and weighed with his own hands to see that it be not one inch too large and not one ounce too heavy for you. He has blessed it with his holy name, anointed it with his consolation, taken one last glance at you and your courage, and then sent it to you from heaven. A special greeting from God to you, and alms of the all-merciful love of God. How important these truths are in the light of Christ's own words. We cannot be his disciples unless we take up our cross and follow him. In his book, The Introduction to the Devout Life, St. Francis de Sales suggests that when we suffer, we ought to consider our Lord, his passion. He is crucified, forsaken, blasphemed, overwhelmed with every kind of injury and sadness, and yet he patiently endures it all for love of us. Consider also, he says, that our sufferings, either in kind or degree, can never even approach all that our Lord endured for us. Quest for Happiness The third enemy which puts obstacles in the way of our happiness is the flesh. By the flesh we mean concupiscence, which, as we have seen, is the tendency of man's lower nature against his higher nature, but more specially the inclination to seek sense pleasures, contrary to the dictates of reason and God's law. The basic passions and tendencies are necessary and good. They come from God. They become sinful only when they are enjoyed in ways which are forbidden by God. When we forget the good purpose God had in placing these tendencies in us and use them solely for the pleasures they afford, we commit sin. For instance, God made food pleasant to the taste and the act of eating enjoyable to man. This is a lawful pleasure, and we are allowed to enjoy it within the reasonable limits of health and physical efficiency. If, however, a person should eat far in excess of the demands of health after hunger had been satisfied and without any other reasonable purpose, he would commit a sin, the sin of gluttony, because he would be making pleasure the supreme goal of his action. This is true also of the other tendencies to sense pleasure. We do wrong if we indulge in them solely for pleasure and without a legitimate reason. We recall that this tendency of our lower nature is a result of the proud rebellion of Adam's will against God, with the consequent loss of the gift of self-control. As we know, God in his great mercy restored to man the possibility of reaching his supernatural goal together with the means of striving for it. 
God, however, did not will to return to man the gift of perfect control over his own body. He wills that we achieve control over our bodies and their tendencies by the slow process of difficult and often repeated efforts. There are two facts which must be grasped in connection with this striving for self-mastery. One is that self-control is always possible with the help of God's grace. The will may be weakened, but it is still free to resist and reject the invitations to sin which come from our lower nature. Furthermore, God gives the necessary actual graces which enlighten the mind and strengthen the will to refuse consent to sin. The second is that self-control is in harmony with man's nature as God planned it. Many non-Catholic professors and so-called psychologists who believe in naturalism tell us to do everything we feel like doing, to follow all our impulses and enjoy pleasure to the full. They also tell us that to curb and control our passions is unnatural and injurious to health. This is false. We are meant by nature to control our bodies according to reason and God's law. We must mortify our senses if we wish to save our souls. It is true that since the fall, self-control costs us many a struggle and many a sacrifice. But we should always remember that we are acting in a human, reasonable, healthy fashion only in so far as we have the passions under control. When we yield to our passions contrary to reason and God's laws, we are acting not humanly, but like animals. It is noble for man's higher faculties to control and command the body. It is not noble and shameful to allow them to be controlled by the body. It is strong and heroic to withstand the often pressing appeals of passion. It is weak and cowardly to give in. Self-control is the high road to peace and happiness even in this life. Self-indulgence is the sure road to discontentment and unhappiness. To prevent concupiscence from controlling us, we have to control concupiscence. St. Paul writes to the Galatians 5.24, And they who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. The self-discipline or crucifixion spoken of by St. Paul describes the efforts of the Christian soul struggling to control and govern the body and its tendencies to pleasure. It is the bodily and spiritual exercise or training of the Christian soldier which fits him to combat the enemies of his soul. In this connection we should read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Know you not that they that run in the race all run indeed, but one receiveth the prize? So run that you may obtain... And every one that striveth for the mastery refraineth himself from all things, and they indeed that they may receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible one. I therefore so run, not as at an uncertainty, I so fight, not as one beating the air, but I chastise my body, and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps, when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway." This self-discipline may be external, by which we mean the control or custody of our bodies and the senses, or it may be internal, by which we mean the control of mind, will, imagination, and memory. Some of the means which self-discipline makes use of are self-denial in the form of firm and unwavering custody of the senses, fasting, and prayer. The right use of such means supposes the practice of the theological and cardinal virtues, in particular of the virtue of temperance, the virtue of self-control and moderation, and fortitude, the virtue of courage.
The Lady in Blue, Mystical Missionary of Texas. In the summer of 1629, about 50 Humano Indians from western Texas appeared before the Spanish Franciscan friars at the town of Isleta, near modern-day Albuquerque, New Mexico. Smaller groups of the Humano had been coming there for some years, each time asking for missionaries to teach their as-yet-uncatechized nation the faith of Christ. The friars inquired exactly how they had learned about our Lord, and in return they would always tell the same rather odd story, that a mysterious lady in blue had been appearing among them and instructing them about God and the Christian religion. It was she, they said, who told them to come to this place and ask for baptism. Although the friars were sympathetic to the Humanos' need for missionaries, the tale about the lady had been easily enough dismissed. There were no Spanish friars in that faraway region, let alone women. But on this last embassy in 1629, that odd story struck a chord with their superior, Father Alonso de Benavides, who had been charged to investigate these strange reports and also to get to the bottom of strange rumors that a Spanish nun was somehow being mystically transported to the Americas. He interviewed the Humano themselves, who pointed to a portrait of a nun and stated that the lady in blue, though younger in age, wore similar clothes. Intrigued, he sent two missionaries to the Humano homeland in western Texas. The missionaries found the people knowledgeable of the faith and baptized a number of them. Benavides composed an account of what had happened, then set off for Spain trying to track down who the nun was. There he learned that it was Sister Maria of the convent of the Immaculate Conception in Agreda. Under obedience, she was directed to reveal these hidden aspects of her interior life, and she also described details of the country, America, and the different peoples of that region. Benavides left the meeting completely convinced. Later, the ecclesiastical authorities investigated her and found her mystical gifts to be authentic. To this day, American folklore reveres Venerable Mary of Jesus of Agreda as one of the founders of the Catholic faith in the state of Texas despite her apparently never leaving her convent. But it is through her spiritual writing that she earned the most fame in her lifetime. Indeed, Benavides himself would later say that, quote, I call God to witness that my esteem for her holiness has been increased more by the noble qualities which I discern in her than by all the miracles which she has wrought in America, end quote. Venerable Maria de Greta, her cause for beatification is now ongoing, left her mortal life on May 24, 1665, leaving behind a spiritual classic, The Mystical City of God. And the locals in Texas continue to cherish a legend that when she said farewell to the Indians for the last time and faded away beyond the hills, she left the area blanketed in deep blue flowers, the color of her robe, the Texas blue bonnet. This article was published by the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter in Scranton, Pennsylvania. For more information, they may be contacted at fssp.com. We'll be back with more from the housetops after this break. Aloha, this is Bear Wozniak from Hawaii. I'm a world champion surfer, and I have the Deep Adventure cast. And when I want to ride the wave of the Holy Spirit, I tune in to WQPH 89.3 FM. Aloha. This is Larry Domenico of Larry's Music Loft, and I want everyone to know about the Turin Crucifix. This is a majestic and stunning depiction 
of the first Good Friday and the death of the Son of God. The holy face of Jesus in particular, as well as the wounds, attempt to replicate that of the Shroud of Turin as closely as possible. The crucifix is ready to hang on a wall, but also comes with a unique rock mount for mounting on a table or other flat surface. Even the mount is complete with details such as the skull, hammer, pliers, and dice. It's beautiful for a Lenten display in a home or chapel and is perfect for any prayer space all through the year. Right now, there's a limited offer that the first 100 sold are blessed with a relic from the true cross of Jesus. With these first 100 sold, there is a certificate signed by the priest to authenticate this blessing. You can also get a 70-page hardbound illustrated book describing the process of design and the details of the crucifix. Another option is the Holy Shroud fragrance. This remarkable fragrance is a blend of pure olive oils from the Holy Land infused with ancient burial fragrances mentioned in the scriptures. The crucifix is about 19 inches high and when mounted on the rock base, it's about 21 inches high. Go to shop.saintbenedict.com. That's shop, S-H-O-P, dot saint, S-A-I-N-T, B-E-N-E-D-I-C-T dot com to order yours. Tim Kilcoyne, WQPH Radio 89.3 FM, offering a practical Lenten reflection, I hope. Think of yourself, body and soul. What should you do for both of them to make it a sacrifice for our Lord so that souls can be redeemed? No pain, no gain. Do something you don't really like to do, like more exercise, better diet, and more prayer time. And also, think about that which is really your weakness You know, for those busybodies out there, it's time to get to the Abbey. Spend some time before the Blessed Sacrament. For those more laid back, maybe it's time to get to the soup kitchen. Work on your weakness, and the Lord will make you grace someday. Remember, your greatness is in heaven by how many souls you won for Jesus. Hello, this is Kendra Von Esch, a recovered corporate executive who left it all behind to help bring others to a deeper relationship with God and the beautiful Catholic faith. Here is my reflection for today. Confession Whoa, that's a biggie, isn't it? Let me just say, God does not want us or need us to come to Him with our ducks in a row to ask for His forgiveness and mercy. When I went to confession on Divine Mercy Sunday in 2013, it was only my second Sunday back at Mass after being away for decades. I wasn't even a creaster. You know those people who go to Mass on Christmas and Easter. I wasn't doing anything. But when I heard the announcements on the previous Sunday about confession being offered, it was the first time I really thought about my mortality. If I believe a half of a half of a half of a mustard seed of this Catholic faith, I am going to hell. I had many mortal sins on my soul and some that I didn't even know were mortal sins at the time. I didn't know about the examination of conscience. I just pulled out an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and started writing. I filled out both sides 
and I was scared to death when I walked in and knelt down to begin my confession. I actually said, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Get a load of this. It's been 26 years since my last confession, trying to make a joke out of the fact that it had been such a long time. And the priest responded with a soft-spoken, Welcome home. Oh, and then I lost it. I started bawling like a baby. And then when the priest absolved me of my sins, I had an out-of-body experience and this supernatural peace was flowing over me like a warm waterfall. I floated out of that church. I don't know how I got to my car. My body was buzzing with this supernatural joy and now I go to confession weekly. So remember, when we fall, and we will fall, we need to go back to God right away. He loves us just as we are. We are his beloved children, and he wants us in our brokenness. So run to confession. It's so beautiful. For more inspiration, free downloads, and resources, check out KendraVonEsch.com. Have a blessed and inspired day. I only have one station on all the time. It is EWTN, but 89.3 is what I listen to because I want to be with the Lord every single day and every single minute. So, Lord, please keep 89.3 on air and strong and getting stronger every day. Thank you, 89.3. We continue now True Devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary by St. Louis de Montfort. Chapter 2, Fundamental Truths of Devotion to the Blessed Virgin. The first truth, Jesus Christ, is the last end of devotion to Mary. Jesus Christ, our Savior, true God and true man, ought to be the last end of all our other devotions, else they are false and delusive. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of all things. We labor not, as the Apostle says, except to render every man perfect in Jesus Christ, because it is in him alone that the whole plenitude of the divinity dwells together with all the other plenitudes of graces, virtues, and perfections. It is in him alone that we have been blessed with all spiritual benediction, and he is our only master who has to teach us, our only Lord on whom we ought to depend, our only head to whom we must be united, our only model to whom we should conform ourselves, our only physician who can heal us, our only shepherd who can feed us, our only way who can lead us, our only truth whom we must believe, our only life who can animate us, and our only all and all things who can satisfy us. There has been no other name given under heaven except the name of Jesus by which we can be saved. God has laid no other foundation of salvation, our perfection, or our glory than Jesus Christ. Every building that is not built on that firm rock is founded upon the moving sand and sooner or later infallibly will fall. Every one of the faithful who is not united to him as a branch to the stock of the vine shall fall, shall wither, and shall be fit only to be cast into the fire. Outside of him there exists nothing but error, falsehood, iniquity, futility, death, and damnation. But if we are in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is in us, we have no condemnation to fear. Neither the angels of heaven, nor the men of earth, nor the devils of hell, nor any other creature can injure us, because they cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. By Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we can do all things. We can render all honor and glory to the Father in the unity of the Holy Ghost. We can become perfect ourselves and be to our neighbor a good odor of eternal life. 
If, then, we establish solid devotion to our Blessed Lady, it is only to establish more perfectly devotion to Jesus Christ and to provide an easy and secure means for finding Jesus Christ. If devotion to Our Lady removed us from Jesus Christ, we should have to reject it as an illusion of the devil. But so far from this being the case, devotion to Our Lady is, on the contrary, necessary for us as a means of finding Jesus Christ perfectly, of loving Him tenderly, of serving Him faithfully. We belong to Jesus Christ and Mary as their slaves. We must conclude from what Jesus Christ is with regard to us, that is, as the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we do not belong to ourselves, but are entirely His, as His members and His slaves, whom He has bought at an infinitely dear price, the price of all His blood. Before baptism, we belonged to the devil as his slaves, but baptism has made us true slaves of Jesus Christ, who have no right to live, to work, or to die, except to bring forth fruit for that God-man, to glorify him in our bodies, and to let him reign in our souls, because we are his conquest, his acquired people, and his inheritance. It is for the same reason that the Holy Ghost compares us first to trees planted along the waters of grace in the field of the church, who ought to bring forth their fruit in their seasons. Second, to the branches of a vine, of which Jesus Christ is the stock, and which must yield good grapes. Third, to a flock, of which Jesus Christ is the shepherd, and which is to multiply and give milk. Fourth, to good land, of which God is the husbandman, in which the seed multiplies itself and brings forth thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Jesus Christ cursed the unfruitful fig tree and pronounced sentence against the useless servant who had not made any profit on his talent. All this proves to us that Jesus Christ wishes to receive some fruits from our wretched selves, namely our good works, because those works belong to him alone, created in good works in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, which words of the Holy Ghost show that Jesus Christ is the sole beginning and ought to be the sole end of all our good works, and also that we ought to serve him, not as servants for wages, but as slaves of love. By slavery, a man is entirely dependent on another during his whole life, and must serve his master without claiming any wages or reward. There are three types of slavery, a slavery of nature, a slavery of constraint, and a slavery of will. All creatures are slaves of God in the first sense, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 23. The demons and the damned are slave in the second sense, the just and the saints in the third. Because by slavery of the will we make choice of God and his service above all things, even though nature did not oblige us to do so, slavery of the will is the most perfect and most glorious to God who beholds the heart, claims the heart, and calls himself the God of the heart, that is, of the loving will. There is an entire difference between a servant and a slave. The servant demands wages for the services which he performs for his master, but the slave can demand nothing. There is nothing among men which makes us belong to another more than slavery. There is nothing among Christians which makes us more absolutely belong to Jesus Christ and his Holy Mother than the slavery of the will, according to the example of Jesus Christ himself, who took on himself the form of a slave for love of us, Philippians 2.7, and also according to the example of the Holy Virgin, who called herself the servant and slave of the Lord. The apostle calls himself, 
as by a title of honor, the slave of Christ. Christians are often so called in the Holy Scriptures, and the word for servus signified in olden times a slave in the completest sense, because there were no servants then like those of the present day. Masters were served only by slaves or freedmen. In order to leave no doubt about our being slaves of Jesus Christ, the Catechism of the Holy Council of Trent calls us Mancipia Christi, the slaves of Jesus Christ. We ought to belong to Jesus Christ and to serve him not only as mercenary servants, but as loving slaves who, as a result of their great love, give themselves up to serve him in the quality of slaves simply for the honor of belonging to him. Before baptism, we were the slaves of the devil. Baptism has made us the slaves of Jesus Christ. Christians must be either the slaves of the devil or the slaves of Jesus Christ. What is said absolutely of Jesus Christ is said relatively of Our Lady. Since Jesus Christ chose her for the inseparable companion of his life, of his death, of his glory, and of his power in heaven and upon earth, he gave her by grace relatively to his majesty all the same rights and privileges which he possesses by nature. All that is fitting to God by nature is fitting to Mary by grace, say the saints, so that, according to them, Mary and Jesus, having but the same will and the same power, have also the same subjects, servants, and slaves. We may, therefore, following the sentiments of the saints and of many great men, call ourselves and make ourselves the loving slaves of the Most Holy Virgin in order to be, by that very means, the more perfectly the slaves of Jesus Christ. Our Blessed Lady is the means our Lord made use of to come to us. She is also the means which we must make use of to go to Him. For she is not like all other creatures, who, if we should attach ourselves to them, might rather draw us away from God rather than draw us near Him. The strongest inclination of Mary is to unite us to Jesus Christ, her Son, and the strongest inclination of the Son is that we should come to Him through His Holy Mother. It is on this account that the Holy Fathers and St. Bonaventure after them say that Our Lady is the way to go to our Lord. The way of coming to Christ is to draw near to her. Moreover, if, as we have said, the Holy Virgin is the Queen and Sovereign of heaven and earth, has she not then as many subjects and slaves as there are creatures? St. Anselm, St. Bernard, St. Bernardine, St. Bonaventure say, All things, the Virgin included, are subject to the empire of God. Behold, all things, God included, are subject to the empire of the Virgin. Is it not reasonable that among so many slaves of constraint, there should be some of love, who of their own good will, in the quality of slaves, give themselves entirely to Mary? Are men and devils to have their voluntary slaves, and Mary to have none? Are we to think that our Lord, who as the best of all sons has divided his entire power with his holy mother, shall take it ill that she too has her slaves? Has he less respect and love for his mother than Esuerus had for Esther, or that Solomon had for Bethsabe? If we do not wish to call ourselves slaves of the Blessed Virgin, let us make ourselves and call ourselves slaves of Jesus Christ, for that is being the slave of the Holy Virgin, inasmuch as Jesus is the fruit and the glory of Mary. Well, that concludes our program for this week. We hope you've enjoyed listening to From the Housetops Radio. That which you hear in the ear, preach from the housetops. 
Until next time, God bless you. From the House Stops is produced by the slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, Still River, Massachusetts. 